Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, February 12th. The war in the Middle East is now 129 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. Well, the Super Bowl is now behind us. I don't know about you, but this entire season was a blur for me. Middle East wars don't exactly leave me much free time. Then again, I've never been great with that whole work-life balance thing. But guess what? A bunch of that work these days goes into this 20-minute news roundup every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm pleased to do it, so thank you for tuning in. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Manny Fabian from the Times of Israel. He's their military affairs reporter. He'll talk to us about the two hostages that were saved last night by the IDF, among other things. But before we talk to Manny, I want to address the thousands of social media trolls out there who are peddling the falsehood that Israel created Hamas. Here's the deal. In the 1970s, Yasser Arafat and the PLO were kidnapping and hijacking and killing Israelis around the world. The violence was spinning out of control, and the Israelis were looking for ways to counter the group's influence among Palestinians. The Muslim Brotherhood was identified as an alternative. The reason? They're not exactly friendly to Israel, of course, but they maintained a strict policy of nonviolence toward Israel. So the Israelis identified a wheelchair-bound cleric named Ahmed Yassin, who they believe could counter the PLO's violent appeal. Yassin ran an organization called Al-Mujama Al-Islami, or the Islamic Center. The group provided health services, daycare, youth activities, and even food to Gazans. It all went well until it didn't. By the mid-1980s, Yassin began to embrace and preach violent Islamist ideas, and by the mid-80s, the Israelis arrested him twice for terrorist-related activity. By then, it was too late. The Intifada erupted in 1987, and then Yassin broke off from the Muslim Brotherhood, creating Harakat al-Mukawama al-Islamiyah within a few weeks of the uprising. That acronym for his new group was Hamas. And the rest is history, a violent history, in fact. Suicide bombings, rockets, tunnels, kidnapping, rape, torture, etc. Did Israel create Hamas? Absolutely not. Not even close. Did the Israelis back the man who went on to found Hamas? Yes. Yes, they did. And I think it's safe to say they regret it. That's the history, folks. Remember that the next time anyone tries to tell you otherwise. Now for your headlines. Headline one, Palestinian journalist working for Al Jazeera was also serving as a commander in the Izzedin al-Qassam brigades, Hamas's self-described military wing. Here's what we know. The IDF recovered a laptop in a raid in northern Gaza a few weeks ago. The computer belonged to a guy named Mohammed Washah who was involved in the Hamas anti-tank unit as well as its drone warfare group. And guess what? The same guy has been appearing on Al Jazeera in recent months. Okay, a few things to note here. First, Al Jazeera is owned by the Qataris, and the Qataris are sponsored of, sponsors of Hamas. Funny how that works. Second, during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, U.S. officials often noted in a very frustrated way, how Al Jazeera reporters just happened to be on location for attacks that killed American soldiers. It got to the point where the U.S. began to threaten the Qataris to get a handle on this. And finally, 
Recently, the IDF struck two terror operatives in southern Gaza. That was actually just last month. Al Jazeera cried foul, saying they were journalists. The IDF said they were terrorists. I don't know about you, but I'm sensing a theme here. Headline two, the Israelis found a server farm under an UNRWA facility in northern Gaza over the weekend. Surprise, UNRWA is working with Hamas. Okay, not a surprise. We've known that for years. But this was beyond even my imagination. The servers were literally plugged into the electrical system of UNRWA's headquarters. The headquarters, folks. There is no coming back from this. At least I hope not. I mean, I can actually see a justification for terror, terror sanctions handed down by the Treasury against UNRWA now. But this is no simple matter. First, UNRWA officials are denying all knowledge of this. Yeah, okay, right. But we are also hearing from some Israelis that they might actually need UNRWA to provide services to the people of Gaza until a replacement for UNRWA can be found. This is a mess, folks. There is no way, there's no other way to slice it. As for me, I just don't understand how the United States, the Europeans, the United Nations, literally everyone allowed this problem to fester. We saw it coming more than a decade ago. The evidence was there and nobody cared. And headline three, and this is the big one, the IDF recovered two hostages in Gaza last night. The news broke last night before Israelis were even awake. The IDF pulled 60-year-old Fernando Simon Marman and 70-year-old Louis Har out of southern the southern town of Rafah. The two were reported to be in good condition and they were immediately transferred to Tel HaShomer Hospital. The timing of this is important. The IDF saved these two hostages in the town that the entire world seems to be warning the IDF not to enter. The Egyptians, the US, the Brits, the Dutch, they're all warning the IDF not to enter Rafah. After last night, the Israelis are not buying it, if they ever were in the first place. There is a good chance that more hostages are held in Rafah, probably an excellent chance at that. Thousands of Hamas fighters are in the tunnels beneath Rafah, and Israel must neutralize them to win the war. And there's a damn good chance that the Hamas leadership is lurking in those tunnels too. Over the weekend, the Egyptians were saying that Hamas has two weeks to cut a deal on the remaining hostages before an IDF incursion into Rafah. But after last night, I imagine that the fuse for this might be days not weeks. Okay, it's now time to welcome Manny Fabian to the program. He's the military correspondent for the Times of Israel. I met him about a year ago in Jerusalem and found him to be an impressive guy. And we're pleased he could make a little time to chat with us, take a little bit of time out of his busy schedule for a few minutes this morning. Welcome, Manny. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. Okay, let's talk about those uh, big headlines coming out of Israel. We've got two hostages recovered. What can you tell us beyond the headlines? So this uh, operation is really something quite special, and it's um, the second successful uh, rescue of hostages from Gaza, uh, and you know the, the first one in months. The first one was shortly after the war began. Uh, there was a rescue of a soldier, uh, Ori Megidish, uh, who was rescued at the beginning of the ground operation. Um, but since then, there has been no successful attempts. There was one attempt where a hostage uh, died, um, but since then, there really hasn't been anything. And then we're talking about Rafah, which is an area where the army has not yet uh, operated on the ground yet. There hasn't been uh, the ground maneuver hasn't really moved, uh, gone to Rafah yet. It's kind of focused on Khan Yunus now, uh, and this is all while the world's attention is on whether or not Israel will operate there or not, carry out a large-scale offensive there. And meanwhile, smaller operations are indeed being carried out uh, to rescue these uh, these two two hostages last night. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you have a sense of uh, exactly which unit was there or, or any other specific information, or is that still being held closely by the IDF? Oh, no, we have a, we have a good idea of what happened. So um, around 1 a.m., um, the uh, Shin Bet Security Agency, agents from the Shin Bet, as well as the Yamam uh, Counterterrorism Unit from the police, uh, they arrived in Rafah uh, in an sort of undercover way so that Hamas wouldn't notice. At 1.49 a.m., they breached into this building, into the second floor of the building where the hostages were being held. Uh, they breached into it with explosives, if, uh, if I understand correctly. So a, 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 not a cold breach, as they call it. Um, and they broke into the building, killed three Hamas terrorists who are guarding the two hostages. And then within a minute, uh, the Air Force began to strike uh, areas around um, around the building to provide cover for the extraction. Um, under an hour, the three hostages were brought out into armored vehicles, taken to another area in Gaza where a helicopter was waiting for them. And then they were you know, taken, uh, airlifted out to a hospital in Israel. And it was done within a very, very short amount of time. Right out of the show, Falda. Okay, to another headline, tell us a little bit about that server farm that the IDF found over the weekend. What are the implications of this? What does it mean for the war? Uh, well, I was there uh, on Thursday to, to really see this from my own eyes. Um, a very impressive site uh, for Hamas. Um, it is one of its more significant assets, according to me at least, uh, where it managed uh, intelligence, stored data, communications as well, and all while hiding it under UNRWA's headquarters. I mean, there's a lot of implications for UNRWA for its involvement. Israel's trying both to... Um, uh, to, to get rid of UNRWA, but it also believes it should stay for now, at least to, to help provide aid for the population. Um, I think it's really significant to note that uh, Israel, uh, the army had operated in this area uh, in Gaza City previously, a few months ago when it began the ground offensive. It operated in this area. It, it didn't discover this, uh, this underground site. It didn't actually know about it all that much. And it was only after uh, Palestinians and terror suspects were interrogated by the Shin Bet uh, did they figure out where to dig exactly to find the entrance. Hamas had blocked up the main entrance. Uh, and this just shows how well Hamas hid the site. That Israel did not know about it. It, it had existed for years. Um, and to find this now after you know months of the ground offensive is very quite a significant thing. And, Let's, we don't know what they're going to find on these servers that they're going to now analyze and see what they'll what they'll get from that. Yeah, my, my understanding is that this was uh, the servers for secure communications among uh, Hamas. So in other words, whatever the Israelis were able to track through regular intelligence gathering, this may have been a separate stream of data. And so now there's the potential for just a, tre a treasure trove of intelligence. So uh, that'll be interesting. And of course, the fact that this was derived from these ongoing interrogations is significant. I think people forget that there are something like 2,500 different Hamas fighters that have been arrested throughout this war and that they are talking. Um, okay, let, let me talk a little bit about Rafa. Right. We know that a battle is looming. We know the IDF continues to talk about this as the last bastion of Hamas operations in Gaza. This is where probably the largest number of Hamas fighters are based. So the battle is looming, but people are saying that it's complicated. What are the complications? It's complicated for two reasons. One, um, 
the vast majority of the Palestinian population in Gaza is now sheltering in Rafah. So the army estimates around 1.3 million out of the 2 million Palestinians in Gaza are in Rafah. Uh, that's a huge issue if the army wants to carry out an offensive there. It, won't, it basically won't be able to if, if all these civilians are, are, are on the streets there in the buildings there. It will be very difficult to operate there without causing harm. And Israel is under international pressure to not cause harm to civilians, of course, and Israel doesn't want to. Um, and then the other issue is Egypt. Um, and this sort of ties in with the Palestinian population. Egypt fears that there'll be a refugee crisis on the border. Uh, Palestinians may attempt to infiltrate into Egypt for safety. And Egypt definitely does not want to accept any Palestinian refugees. So um, to actually operate in Rafah, it, Israel needs to um, move the Palestinians out, or a, a lot of them to move them to different areas in Gaza. They could move them to Khan Yunus if they finish wrapping up operations there, or potentially even back to northern Gaza if the IDF also wraps up operations there too. And it also needs Egypt's sort of blessing to be able to carry out this operation, especially on its, uh, on its border. And Israel really will, does want to, um, to control the border between Egypt and, and Gaza because that is sort of Hamas's lifeline. It's, it's, it's sort of, uh, of weapon smuggling basically came through that, that route. Right. And the Egyptians, of course, are not owning up to the fact that there are these tunnels and they're denying them, in fact. So this is going to get interesting. Obviously, we've talked about it on this show in the past about the uh, delicate diplomatic dance that is going on right now. It does seem, at least in part, that the Egyptians are preparing for this. It looks like they've acquiesced to some extent. Let me ask you kind of a broader question, Manny. I mean, there are a lot of active fronts right now, and I know you track the war in Gaza the hostilities in Lebanon, there's nearly nightly arrests in the West Bank. I'm assuming that Gaza keeps you the busiest with your day job at the Times of Israel. But is there another front that you find more challenging to cover than others or more interesting? I mean, I've got to imagine you're juggling a lot right now. Yeah, the, the Gaza and the Lebanon fronts definitely take up most of the time. Um, there are times where the Lebanon front seems to be a lot more active than even the Gaza one. There was a time where, you know, the, the Gaza operation, it's every day most of the same thing. The army kills Hamas operatives, they capture sites. Uh, but in, with, with Lebanon, it's, it's very different. There's always um, a strike carried out here and there. And Lebanese media is sometimes a bit more difficult to, uh, to keep a track of what's going on there. Uh, the West Bank is, is less complicated because I'm pretty well versed on the Palestinian media, but I... I'm, you know, I'm getting to know the the Lebanese media and and all the towns and where Hezbollah operates uh, in Lebanon. Sort of more specifically, I know generally they operate in South Lebanon, um, but there's a lot a lot to learn there to actually understand what's going on. It's, it's been a front that has been mostly inactive for the past uh, decade and a half. So I think it, not just me. I think Israeli media in general is starting to relearn again what Hezbollah is, where they operate, what kind of tactics they have. Um, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a challenge there with, with Lebanon, even though it does take up a lot of my time. Yeah, I'll just uh, anecdotally note that um, think tanks in Washington are also getting up to speed here on uh, what's happening with Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's, um, it's a lot to track. Um, let me actually ask you a, a, a specific question for our viewers and listeners. I want to ask you about the Israeli gag order system. Folks here in the U.S. don't really know much about it. Uh, but it's used fairly often, right? I mean, how often would you say that you are told that there is a gag order on stories that you're tracking? 
And maybe more specifically, have there been stories that have frustrated you because you've had to hold off on publishing them because of the Israeli gag order? Uh, yes, yes to all of that. Basically, um, the censor, uh, the IDF censor will uh, at times uh, let all the journalists know that a certain thing that they're likely aware of can't be published. And uh, I can give one example, which we can publish now, which is the flooding of the Gaza tunnels. Uh, there was a period where the army began to flood tunnels with uh, seawater, um, and we were not allowed to publish uh, information about that, even though some of, some, of, some of the reporters, including me, have seen it with our own eyes in Gaza during some of our, our visits to Gaza. We've, we've seen this, I've taken pictures of it as well, and we weren't allowed to report on it. And then it got leaked to the international media. Um, we were allowed to cite them, and then slowly, slowly, the army eventually gave up and said, all right, you can publish it now, and uh, we were all allowed. Um, in general, every time I um, I'm publishing something that's not come like from the army spokesperson, either from a trip to Gaza or if I'm speaking to a military source that's not um, sort of approved to speak to media, then I do need to check this with the censor. So anything that I want to publish from from a, a trip to Gaza, um, I'll need to run it by them, make sure um, they they check that, that there's nothing written in there that's not allowed, and that goes for pictures as well. And, that's where I find it sometimes frustrating is that I'll, I'll, I'll be in Gaza, I'll take some pictures and then I'll be told that I can't publish the pictures because they uh, either give it, give up away a, a the sort of the, the location of the troops and I'll need to wait some time to publish them. That's happened a few times, which is a bit frustrating to me. I can only imagine. Um, last question for you real quick. I, I mean, you, you've got some fascinating stories here. I mean, what, just maybe for a minute, just tell us a little bit about what life has been like since the war broke out four months ago. You're obviously interfacing with senior IDF officials. It sounds like you've been to Gaza, I don't know, four or five times. Twelve times. Twelve times. Amazing. 12 That's incredible. Times, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's life been like? I mean, just going into Gaza 12 times has got to be pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been it's been quite chaotic uh, and not enough sleep. Um, but I'm trying to, you know, pace myself, and I, I did in the beginning as well, especially, you know, when October 7th happened, um, I worked from the moment it, it broke and for the next few days, and then I realized that a ground offensive was looming and I had to pace myself. Um, so I've been trying, you know, to make sure not to get burnt out. It's, it's 129 days now I've been doing this in a row. I don't think I've taken any days off, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, being in Gaza as well is, is, is pretty tough as well. You're, you're out for many, many hours wearing a bulletproof vest and a helmet, going in armored vehicles, um, being in the mud. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it could be fun for some people, but it's, it's definitely not something easy to do. Um, and that's basically been, been my life for the past uh, four and a bit months. Um, and it's not all just being, you know, in front of the computer and, and writing up updates. It's also being out in the field. Well, keep it up. Your reporting has been terrific. Thank you, Manny Fabian, for taking time out to join us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, here's what FTD is tracking today. My colleagues Behnam Bentalablu and Jonathan Saya are noting the recent decision by Meta to remove Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, from Facebook and Instagram for violation of their policies. While the regime in Iran blocks social media access for its citizens and criminalizes VPNs, many regime officials frequently post on the same platforms to spread genocidal messages. Let's hope this inspires other social media platforms to follow suit. What say you, Elon Musk? Uh, my colleague Craig Singleton 
is digging into a Reuters scoop that the U.S. utility company Duke Energy intends to decommission Chinese-made cattle batteries, C-A-T-L, that are currently located on one of the nation's largest marine bases, Camp Lejeune. Late last year, Craig published groundbreaking research on cattle's close connections to the Chinese Communist Party, highlighting their data security risks. Duke Energy also plans to phase out cattle products and civilian projects following congressional pressure. This move to ban the batteries less than a year after ribbon cutting ceremonies for them is a big step in the right direction for U.S. national security. And finally, my colleagues Brad Bowman and Mark Montgomery sat down to discuss the state of play in Taiwan, Ukraine, and Israel, why the outcome of these beleaguered democracies matters to Americans, and what role the U.S. should play in helping them. I encourage you to check out that conversation released as the latest episode of FTD's Foreign Policy podcast. Oh, and if you haven't had enough of me today, I'll be on a panel this afternoon discussing security in the Eastern Mediter Mediterranean Sea region. I'll be joined by my colleague Sinan Gidi, also the Deputy Foreign Minister of Greece and the Assistant Secretary of State here in the U.S. for Energy Resources. That event will be moderated by Lena Argiri, the Washington correspondent for Greek Public Television. You can catch that event on FDD's website at 12.30 p.m. Eastern today. That's it for our program. Reach, uh, read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Tune in Wednesday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. My guest will be Dan Senor, author of the book, Startup Nation, and host of the podcast, Call Me Back. This should be a fun one. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Thank you.